Uh, well, it's good to be back uh, with you. Uh, I've um, been out of the pulpit the last four weeks, even though I've been here two of those. Um, I never realized uh, how good it would be to listen to somebody else preach. This is so nice. Um, but I've, I, I've, my guns are loaded tonight. I've been off for four weeks. I might be up here for an hour. You never know. Um, you're good with that, Jalen? All right. Well, you, you'll be the only one left. So. Um, all right, so we start our uh, series in Ruth. And uh, really got me thinking about uh, women, really. I mean, the two main characters, and the two of the three main characters in Ruth are uh, women. And uh, I ran across this article uh, in The Guardian, um, a news publication, and uh, they talked about the convergence of two very different movements uh, that are now fighting a common cause. Uh, one movement is the Me Too movement. Uh, and the Me Too movement, if, if you've not heard, uh, is about um, it's an international movement against sexual harassment and assault. It really got going with a hashtag uh, this past October uh, that kind of arose uh, out of the Harvey Weinstein and the uh, Bill Cosby stuff. And um, one actress uh, kind of got it all going, and she said, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And man, it, it caught fire. It's not trite or trendy. Uh, it's real. Because the problem uh, is pervasive. It's very powerful. But then this other movement that's right alongside uh, the Me Too movement uh, it has been going on for a long time. Uh, and they kind of call themselves the anti-porn crusaders. Uh, they've been around uh, really since the early 70s. Uh, and really, they started in the 70s because two things happened in 1969. Uh, one thing that happened was that the, uh, the first... Um, uh, sexually explicit mainstream film uh, was released by Andy Warhol. Uh, the second thing that happened is that the Supreme Court ruled that people could watch whatever they would like in the privacy of their own homes. So you put these two things together uh, and it, uh, it, it was a firestorm. Uh, conservatives came out of the woodwork um, and so Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, the president at the time, uh, he commissioned a group of people to study the effects of pornography on a person and on the society. And after uh, they had done their work, uh, they came back with this summary. I'm quoting this. Uh, Pornography is not an important social problem. There's no evidence that exposure to such material is harmful to individuals and that current legal and policy initiatives are more likely to create problems than solve them. Okay, so if you think the conservatives were mad uh, because of the release of the film and because of the Supreme Court ruling, now they're really angry. And so what came out of that is, um, one of the things that came out of that was the National Center for Sexual Exploitation. It was founded by uh, some Christian clergymen of all stripes, uh, and it sought ever since uh, the early 70s uh, to expose the links between uh, pornography on the one hand and child sexual abuse, prostitution, and sex trafficking on the other. It wants to find the links between those two. It's trying to say that the, the findings of that report uh, are false. And a lot of this organization, they have put their efforts behind, behind the uh, exploitation of children. Uh, they've, they, they've put their efforts behind how men have been exploited too. But the bulk of their work has been done with the object, objectification of women. Well, sounds like the Me Too movement too, doesn't it? So they both are fighting this common cause, even though they come, usually come from very different political and ideological leanings. 
But the objectification for women, you know, it didn't start. It didn't start in the late 60s. It's nothing new in the history of the world. It's not like women were safe and valued and admired before 1969. It's just part of the fall. Even all the way back to the Old Testament, to ancient history, we see uh, the sad story of men exploiting women. Then we see Jesus in a very different way. He interacts with women in a favorable and in a dignifying manner. In the book of Acts, women play an important role in the advancement of the gospel. But it's not like you know, the Old Testament, where the women were treated bad, and the New Testament, they were treated good. No, there's hints and there's snippets and there's glimpses of the important role of women, even all the way back in the Old Testament. One of those women is Ruth. The book's named after her, and she's going to be our conversation partner this next four weeks. And we all need Ruth. Men, uh, Ruth is going to give you a much more glorious, nuanced, and full appreciation of women than you currently have. Because women can't be reduced just to their sexuality. I know none of us would say that. I know most of us wouldn't even think it, but we live that way. How else do you explain the plight of women in human history? Brothers, all of us need to grow in this. We, we've done a poor job and we need Ruth to help us. Uh, women, you need Ruth too. You need someone who's used mightily by the Lord. You need someone who's courageous and tender, who's bold and meek. And that's what you'll find in Ruth. But what we all need is something much more than the example of Ruth. We need the grace of God. Ruth might be who the book is named after. She might be mentioned more times than anybody else in the book. But God and his grace are front and center. So let's read Ruth 1. I'll make some comments as we go along. You find it in bulletin, page 7. In the days uh, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there, there meaning Moab, for about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, so let me summarize. You've got Elimelech. Elimelech is married to Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Chilion. They marry two different women, Orpah and Ruth. You see how it all happens here. All the dudes die. We're just left with the women. That's where we're at at the end of verse 5. And these people all live in Moab. You've got Elimelech and you've got Ruth. They're Israelites. Their sons are full-blooded Israelites. And they marry full-blooded Moabite women. All right. Verse 6. Then she, she's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. 
And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. All right, so let's go back here. You've got um, Naomi. She's got her daughters-in-law. You've got Orpah and Ruth. Orpah stays home in, in Moab. Ruth goes with Naomi back. They leave Moab uh, to go back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. All right, verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law, Orpah, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley feast. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you, um, uh, that you would send your spirit to accompany your word and you'd cause transformation to happen in our lives. Do this through me, a broken vessel, uh, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have it. Uh, Ruth is this little bitty book. It's tucked away in the Old Testament, and it's behind Judges. We spent a lot of time in Judges, uh, so you know where we're at in Judges. But let me remind you, if you've forgotten, uh, when we get to Judges in the Old Testament, uh, God has parted the Red Sea. God's people have left Egypt. Uh, they've, now they're, they, they've went into the desert. They wandered there for 40 years. They ended up crossing uh, the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. That's where they are. But when they get to the Promised Land, it's not uh, void of people. There's tons of people still there, and they're pagans. And the, the, the pagans, uh, the Israelites run great risk of adopting the pagans' religion unless they're taken care of. And that's the commandment in Joshua and Judges is to take care of these people, to, to, for, them to, um, for them to not be there anymore. And um, judge, the book of Joshua and the book of Judges tells the same story of they don't do a very good job of that. Uh, so they fall back into their same old patterns. And what we find in Ruth is we're in one of those cycles. We're in one of those cycles where God's people have rebelled and God has sent a famine as a punishment for their sin. That's where we're at. Times are tough. This is the backdrop to Ruth. So in chapter 1, you see that you're introduced to lots of characters, but there's two main ones. There's Naomi and there's Ruth. Naomi, uh, in in chapter 1, represents the insiders. Uh, She is an Israelite. 
Uh, she's got a certain status with certain rights, certain privileges. Then you have Ruth. Now, Ruth is not an insider. Ruth is an outsider. Ruth is a Moabite, a foreigner, and it comes with a certain stigma. And what we see in chapter 1 is that both need God's grace. Both Ruth and Naomi need God to come and save the day. So that's what I want to look at. Grace to the insiders and then grace to the outsiders. So grace to the insiders. Uh, do you see Naomi's need for grace? It's, it's huge. It's obvious. Uh, she's lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. And to top it off, uh, her, daughter, her, her sons did not have any children. She's grandchildless. She's left destitute. She has no real hope to cling to. It's, really, it's a tragic story. And it climaxes in Naomi's woeful declaration to the women of Bethlehem at the very end of the chapter. See, her life's empty. And she didn't choose it. This isn't a road she's chosen. Instead, the life of suffering has chosen her. And there's times when this happens. There's, life, there's times in life uh, where life just thrusts us willy-nilly down a path that we would never have chosen for ourselves. No one chooses for their spouse and children to die. No one chooses to have a crippling accident or a life-threatening disease. No one chooses to be a victim of abuse. But perhaps you have battled an illness. Maybe it's mental. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's an allergy. And there's no positive prognosis in sight. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've ended up in a bad financial situation because of others' poor choices. Maybe uh, for you it's the absence of a desired spouse. Or it's friends who have left you and now you're sad. See, the number of ways that we can experience emptiness is infinite. But what do we see God do in Ruth 1? What do we see him do to Naomi? He puts someone in her life. Ruth, in many ways, becomes tangible grace from God to Naomi. Naomi needed a companion. And doesn't God do that to us, too? If you're wondering, how, how in the world... Am I going to experience God's grace in the middle of my sorrow? Well, almost certainly, God's grace to you is going to come in a companion that he chooses. But think about your suffering. Isn't it easy to isolate yourself? Isn't it easier to choose isolation in the midst of our unchosen suffering? And if we do choose isolation, we're almost certainly forfeiting the grace that God's given to us. But put yourself in Ruth's shoes. Imagine the role she had to play. It's got to force you to ask some questions of application, like how does one comfort another person who's in suffering? What does it mean to be a Ruth in someone else's life? One of the most, uh, one of the, most um, qu the questions I get the most is, what in the world do I say? <laughs> what do I say in the hospital? What do I say to a friend who uh, just got dumped? What do I say to the person who just lost a, lost a loved one? What do I say to the person who's just gotten a, 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 a terrible bill of health? It's a tough question, but it's also really easy. Say nothing. Be there. If you're going to say anything, just say that you're sorry. Pray with them. 
sit with them in the awkwardness, in the pain. It doesn't take a calling to be a pastor. You don't have to have a certain personality type. In fact, it doesn't even take you not having any suffering in order for you to comfort a sufferer. See, Ruth has lost her husband, and she wants to comfort Naomi. She's suffering too. See, suffering along someone else, it takes something so much more universal than the calling to be a pastor. The universal thing that we all have as Christians is the love of Jesus. You have it. I have it. And we can extend it to fellow sufferers. So in Naomi, we, we, we see that insiders, those in the church, those who are part of God's people, they're not immune to suffering. It can come upon them. But we also see in Naomi, we can see the insiders, those in the church, God's people, they're not immune to sin either. Look at her. Oh, well, first of all, she moved to Moab. She moved to Moab. You might say, well, it's a sin to live in Moab. Yeah, it was. If you were part of God's people, he had given you a land. It was his gift. Then you might say, well, how can you fault Naomi for moving to Noab? She moved there because there was a famine. Or you could say it was her husband's decision. She's just an innocent bystander of her husband, Elimelech's poor choice. But here's what you got to know. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says, if there's a famine that comes upon the land, it's because of my judgment. And there's a real easy solution to this problem. Repent. All you got to do is repent and I will remove the famine from your land. Well, Limelech, uh, he's got a way of sidestepping repentance. He's got a way of sidestepping, calling on God for mercy, and he just flees and goes to the greener pastures of Moab. So yes, Moab was against God's will for his family, but after after her husband died, uh, she's stuck there. Not stuck there, but she's there for 10 years. She's got her sons. She's got her daughters-in-law. She doesn't have her husband. She's got 10 years in Moab where she had the opportunity to return to Bethlehem. But she chose to stay. Things had gotten really comfortable. And her rebellion became familiar. and She didn't want to leave it. But it gets even worse for Naomi. Look at verses 20 and 21. Page 8. Top page 8. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Which means pleasantness, by the way. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So here you've got Naomi. You you would hope that this woman would leave Moab, come back home to Bethlehem, and she would show up to the people of the town broken. She would show up repentant. But she doesn't. You would hope she'd say something like, I know I did something real stupid. I know I lived in Moab when I could have come home. But instead, all you hear from Naomi is her blaming God for the state of her life. But look at it from another angle. You know who's likely standing right next to her when she says verses 20 and 21? (laughs) Ruth. How would you feel if you were Ruth and you heard all this? Ruth's saying, look, I gave up everything for you and you're talking about how life is so miserable. But she doesn't. There's, no, there's nothing on Naomi's lips of thank you to Ruth. There's no, I'd be really grateful for some company on this difficult road home. There's nothing but angry moping taking place in Naomi's heart. Moreover, there's no hint of Naomi looking for Ruth's spiritual interest. 
we have no uh, hint that, that she really cares about the state of uh, <laughs> Ruth's soul. You don't see her calling out to God, but God seeks her out. God seeks Naomi out in spite of her attitude to redeem her and Ruth. So fortunately for us, God's mission isn't dependent on our attitude. God's mission to rescue sinners is not limited to our flaws. God's going to call to himself whomever he chooses. Sometimes he uses it through the most bizarre messengers. People like Naomi, people like you, and people like me. We are bizarre. But one thing's sure about Naomi, she's a mess. Some of it's the result of her own choices, and some of it's the result of living in a fallen world. And she's so hardened that the only way that she can see God active in her life is to blame him for her situation as if he's neither good nor is he loving. She excuses her sin by the pain she's experienced. And don't we do that? Aren't we quick to play the victim card when we need to play the humility card and take responsibility for the mess we're in? Naomi is in need of the grace of God, and God gives it to her by giving her Ruth and by allowing her to return home to Bethlehem. And he will do the same for you too, Christian. He will throw his lasso out at you and pull you back home, even if you are unwilling. He will throw his lasso out at you and call you out for your need for his grace. You don't outgrow the need for grace. You never get so mature that you're beyond the scope of rebelling against his goodness. You never get so mature uh, that, that you outgrow the need to repent. That's part of being an insider. God's grace continues after you, for you're his child. So grace for the insiders. Look at grace for the outsiders. It may not be immediately obvious why Ruth would be considered an outsider, but she is in two respects. Uh, the first is, is that she's, uh, she is um, an outsider racially. Remember, uh, Ruth didn't become a part of the family until she married into it when they were already in Moab. She's a Moabite. She looked different than Israelites. She thought different than Israelites. She spoke a different language than the Israelites. She thought about the world completely different. And all of that would have been immediately obvious to the people in Bethlehem when they showed up. Did you see that word that they use? I think it's at about verse 16. It says that the town was stirred. Well, most of them, maybe all of them, had never seen a Moabite before. Imagine her experience living there in Israel. You know what it was like for her. You know, she heard whispers from these homegrown Israelites asking the question, what is that Moabite doing in our town? You know, she was intentionally excluded from certain privileges for no other reason than her race. You know that there were other times where it was less aggressive, it was unintentional, but she was still excluded. You know Ruth was probably offended by an Israelite when the Israelite did not mean any harm whatsoever, but the Israelites were ignorant of Ruth's culture and how it worked. But what we will learn is that this Moabite outsider is made an insider into the people of God. See, Ruth didn't show up into Israel and say, you know, I'd like to plant a church just for Moabites. If there's Moabites around here, all the Moabites can go here. Or, nor does she try to talk all the Moabites to come with her and Naomi so that they could plant a Moabite church in the middle of Bethlehem. They didn't do that at all. 
somehow these people, the Israelites and Ruth, who's a Moabite, had to get to know one another. They had to figure out how to do life, how to worship in harmony with one another. So racial reconciliation had to take place, at least to a degree. Now, here in Lexington, here in our neighborhood, we don't have Moabites. We don't have Israelites. Now, we might have people from Israel, but not in the same way as in the Old Testament. See, the Israelites in the Old Testament just call them the people of God. But what we do have are whites, we have blacks, we have Pan-Asians, we've got Latino Hispanics in our neighborhood. Not in our country, within walking distance of this place. Isn't that exciting? See, most of us, we grew up in Kentucky. We did not grow up in a place that was very diverse in a racial sense. So the whole idea of racial reconciliation for, for almost all of us is brand new. It's hard. It's complicated, but it's worth it. See, by growing in our understanding of our neighbors who are different from us racially, we get to grow in humility. As we make less presumptions and we ask more questions. See, by growing in our racial diversity, even within the walls of this church, we reflect the character of God in a more full sense. Because God in himself is diverse. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. See, our, our dream uh, here at this church is that any person who is in Christ would feel like an insider within these walls regardless of their race. Why? Because we're willing to lay down our preferences for the sake of love. That's racial reconciliation. This is some 21st century idea. This was going on in Moab or with a Moabite in Bethlehem. So no doubt, she's an outsider racially, uh, but she's an outsider in another sense. Do you see it? She's a spiritual outsider. See, being a non-Israelite was a, a, was a big deal for Ruth, but she's also a spiritual one. It's her spiritual state that makes her an outsider. Because to be a Moabite in Moab means that uh, Ruth was a pagan. And the word pagan isn't derogatory warm, that the derogatory term that's a synonym for immoral. Being a pagan is being a part of a whole different religious system, the Moabite one. See, in the ancient Near East, there was no such thing as a non-religious person. Everyone was religious. And religion was tied to your nationality. The Moabites had their religious system. The Edomites had their religious system. The Egyptians had their religious system. You get the point. And you might say, all right, Marsh, that's archaic. Haven't we moved beyond that? <laughs> Can't you say that in the last 200 years, we've made so many technological advancements uh, that we can explain the things that they were trying to explain in ancient Near East with science? You might say, well, that's my worldview. You might say, well, that's the way I think about the world. I can explain anything supernatural with science. Anything that can't be explained by science, it's just a matter of time before you can explain it with science. I, I understand that that's your position. Uh, science, uh, Christians have done a poor job at being pro-science. They should be. <laughs> We're just discovering uh, what it is that God's created. So Christians should be all about science. But I would venture to say that if you say you're a scientific kind of person and not a religious kind of person, that there's something else going on in your life that you're religious about. You might call it an ideology. 
So in place of your religion, you might be just as passionate about a political ideology or an economic one or a family one. And you give yourself to it in the same way that religious people give themselves to religion. And if that's you, there's good news for you and bad news. The bad news is, is that you're an outsider to Jesus. You're an outsider to Jesus in the same way that people who are part of other religious systems are an outsider to Jesus. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is that as an outsider, you have the exact same need that we do as insiders. It's the grace of God. See, insiders and outsiders need grace. See, Naomi needed grace because she needed to be able to think back in her people's history to the Red Sea. She needed to see that God had parted the Red Sea and given them salvation from their oppressor. That was the salvific moment for the Old Testament. That, when you were in the dumps as one of God's people, you could always look back to that and be affirmed that God did indeed love you. You could be assured that his love for you is true. See, God didn't leave Naomi out to dry. Just Naomi forgot the God of her salvation. And she needed to be reminded of it through the story that we're going to read. But it's easy to forget the God of your salvation when you're in the midst of suffering. And I don't know why you're suffering the way that you are. But I can tell you there's one thing that we need to take off the table as a reason for your suffering. The reason you're suffering isn't because God doesn't love you. God does love you. He gave his one and only son to die for you and to raise again from the dead to give you hope in the midst of your suffering. So insiders, yeah, we, we need this grace. But remember, Naomi's an insider. She's an insider who needed grace to pull her out of her complaint too. Not just in her suffering, but also in her sin. And God did that too, didn't he? He gave her Ruth. Ruth was her companion. Ruth said, Ruth said she was going to be with her no matter what. But Ruth's not the final answer to Naomi's needs. See, Jesus left much more behind than Ruth did. Ruth left behind the, the um, obvious prospects of getting married and having children. Jesus left behind the fellowship that he had with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. He left the constant praise of angels to come and live with us. A people who despised him, a people who rejected him, and people who put him to death. So Ruth was Naomi's faithful companion, but she couldn't be with her 24-7. She had to go to work. She ended up getting married. But Jesus, on the other hand, says he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. And in his grace, Jesus says to you what Ruth says to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people. That's what he says to you, because there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not death, not Satan, not your suffering, not even your sin. See, Jesus clings to you, and he clings to you so tightly that you can't wiggle out of his grip. And you're not going to have any luck in persuading him to loosen his fingers upon you. He's chosen you, and he drags you, often unwillingly, just like he did Naomi, or even surprisingly, like he did Ruth, back into fellowship with him. For that's what you and I were created for. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those of us uh, who feel especially empty.
Oh, Lord, would you show us the fullness of your grace? Convince us of your love for us. You've done that in your word, Lord. I pray you do that here in this sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.